thank you. We thank you for the mercy tree. We thank you what that song says, Jesus Christ has overcome. We thank you that that is the reality of our life, that we can live in that promise, that we can live in that reality, that we can know for a fact that you have overcome, that you have risen from the dead, and all those who are yours will rise with you. Jesus, we pray this morning that as we continue in worship, as we open your word here in just a moment, would you open it uh, to us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Uh, God, not only for ourselves, but as is our custom, we pray for another church in the area, and I pray for Pastor Mike Potter and for Foothills Fellowship. God, we pray <clears throat> for those people, your people, in that body of believers that, you, that they would have this great sense of your overwhelming goodness and grace, that the gospel would be huge uh, to them as well. And so, Lord, come now. Come teach us. Come instruct us. Come guide us. Come challenge us. Wh whatever it is that we need in our life, we pray that your word would be open to us, that your spirit would have the freedom to work within us, and that you would come and accomplish your desire for your people here today. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. 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 We're going to have a seat. And a good morning. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out and uh, turn to Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark 11 is where we'll start this morning, the end of Mark 11, as we continue through this sermon series uh, in the book of Mark, Who is This Jesus? And we'll start at the end of Mark 11. We'll move a good way through uh, <clears throat> the entirety of chapter 12. But ch chapter 12, I don't know what that is. Chapter 12, apparently I can't speak this morning. But uh, uh, as you're turning to the text, and if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the lobby. Encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. That's the authority. Uh, I, what I say really doesn't matter. What God says matters uh, infinitely uh, in all things. And so we want to get at what God says. Uh, but as we turn to the text, let me just begin maybe by uh, posing a question for us here this morning to wrestle through. Uh, but have you ever had a situation in your life where you found yourself asking this question, who's in charge? Ever been there? Right, there's some chaos or there's something crazy going on or confusion or things of that nature. I, I've got I had a number of examples come to my mind, but uh, the, the first one that came to my mind when I was, started thinking about this uh, this past week was when I was still teaching uh, in school, and I was walking through the hallway, and there was a student teacher, and I was first or second grade, something like that, and this lady, I can, I can hear her as I'm walking by, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, and I just remember thinking in the hallway, I wasn't about to go in there and tell her this, but I'm like, if you have to tell them you're in charge, you're not in charge, all right, you don't have control of what's going on, but that question, who's in charge, See, so let's press it a little bit further here this morning. In your life, in your life, who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Who's in control of your life? Who is the authority in your life? Now, I would hope as followers of Jesus or people who profess to be followers of Jesus that what we would state or what we uh, would articulate or what would come out of our mouth would be, well, of course, God is in charge and God is in control. But when it comes to the actual practice of my life, would that be consistent with what I would say with respect of who's in charge of my life? Because in this text, what we're going to see in this text as we come to Mark 11 and 12 is we see a variety of different groups of religious leaders that are attempting to grab control, grab authority, undermine or usurp the authority that belongs to Jesus and to Him alone. And, and this overarching theme of what we're going to see as we walk through the text this morning is, is this challenging of the authority or the control that Jesus at least should have in our lives. So get this, make note of this. Here's the nail, the main idea, the big point, whatever you want to call it. It's this. 
It's the authority Jesus has in my life will determine my response to him in all things. The authority that Jesus has in my life, in your life, in our lives, will determine my response to him in all things. To the degree that Jesus is in control of my life, is the degree to which I am surrendered to his will. It's the degree to which I will follow him. If Jesus has full authority in my life, I will follow him. Not perfectly, not without sin, not without issue. But if he is the authority in my life, I will follow him. If he's not, then the best thing I can say is all bets are off, but most likely you're not going to follow him And these variety of groups of religious leaders that we're going to see this morning, see what what they wanted, they wanted the benefit. Listen very carefully to this, loved ones. They wanted the benefit of serving God, but they wanted to do it on their terms and in their ways. We cannot come to the scriptures, to church, to discipleship, uh, to walking with Jesus and go, I want all the benefits of being close to you, but check it out, Jesus. Here's the ways in which I will follow you. It doesn't work like that. That's not having anything to do with that. And I think this text this morning will serve in a number of ways as a great warning for us with respect to that. Now, because of the volume of the text, I'm not going to read it all here at the outset. We've prayed for our time. And so let's just begin to press into uh, what God's Word has for us here uh, this morning. I'm starting in Mark 11, verse 27. And as we move through, actually, title of the message this morning is Who's in Charge? And as we move through the text, uh, one of the things you'll see me use is the phrase of false authority, and that's meant to represent uh, ways in which the religious leaders, and by way of application, you and I, uh, would attempt to undermine, to usurp, to to, to, uh, take control in some area of our lives that rightfully belongs to Jesus and to Him alone. And so notice at the end of Mark 11 and verses 27 through 33, here's the first thing we see with respect to who's in charge. It's that false authority questions Jesus' authority. False authority will question the authority that Jesus has in your life, in my life, in our lives. The issue at hand is whether or not Jesus is really in charge. Look at what the text says. And they, Mark's talking about Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. Now, remember the last time Jesus was in the temple? If you flip back just a few verses, Pastor Stephan was teaching on this last week, uh, you you had uh, Jesus in the temple, and he was cleansing the temple. And he cleared it out, and all the merchants, and, and all the chicanery, and all this foolishness that's going on, get out! And then he left. So next time in the temple, it's, it's most likely the next day. So Jesus is walking through the temple, and then notice who else shows up. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. How many people here want to bet that was kind of an awkward, tense moment at first? Right? Jesus is walking this way, right? And they're coming this way, and they can see each other, and it's kind of like, um, are we going to talk about what happened yesterday? And so they come up to him, and they ask him a question. Verse 28, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who, who gave you this authority to do them? Now on the surface, to be completely fair to the, the whole of the religious leaders and, and Mark's writing and things of that nature, th- there's a slight possibility that this might be a legitimate question that they would ask. Because what they're saying is, who gave you the authority to, to clear the temple? Who, who gave you the authority to do something that really is, that rightfully would belong to us if it belongs to anybody? Who, who said you could do that? But notice as Mark writes, that's not their intent. In fact, their heart is proven because Jesus in verse 29 says, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, you want to know? Great, answer one question, and then I'll tell you by what authority I've done these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And here's where we see their heart come out. And they huddle up, right? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Makes sense, (laughs) right? If you say that John the Baptist is from heaven, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you follow him? And most importantly, why didn't you get that he was talking about me, that he was pointing you to me, that he was pushing you to follow me? 
had no interest in going down that route. But then notice in verse 32, but shall we say from man, and Mark in his writing doesn't even have them finish that thought. It's like we can't even go down that road, the, the, the riot and the upheaval and, and the response of the people. And then Mark as a narrator gives us this note about their heart. They were afraid of the people for they all held that John, uh, John really was a prophet. And so we see their heart in this. And so they answer Jesus, we do not know. Bull, you know, you just don't want to answer the question. That's the issue. And more importantly, they're fighting to maintain this semblance, this, this, this um, facade of this control and authority that they thought they had, that they had come to know and love. See, false authority questions Jesus' authority. These guys are doing damage control. But if we're honest, listen very carefully, loved ones, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we at times wrestle with this same notion in our life? That I want to be in control. I want to call the shots. I want to sit on the throne. I want to be in authority. I mean, part of our sinful nature moves us to that place. I, I, God, I, I don't want to come under your authority. I, I don't want to fall under anyone's authority. I want to be in control. It's the oldest lie in the book, literally. You go back to Genesis 3, and that's what the serpent told Eve. You can be like God. Literally, that's his words. You can be like God. And we buy that lie too. I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to submit to any authority because I can be like God. Because if we're, if we're really going to fully embrace the authority of Jesus, if I'm not going to question, if I'm not going to push against it, if I'm, if I'm not going to wonder whether or not he has full authority in my life, if I'm going to fully embrace that, it's to surrender any sense of authority in myself. That he is in, he's completely in control. And, and I have no control that the entirety of my life becomes oriented towards King Jesus and not towards myself. Hear me when I say this. I love you, but you have to know you are not a king and you are not a queen. There's one king, <clears throat> one king his name is Jesus. He sits on the throne. Now God in his infinite goodness and grace uh, will eventually let you and I be a part of the royal court, so to speak. But there's only one king. Some of you, maybe a royal court might be a stretch. Some of us might be more like jesters or something like that. All right, We're in the room, but barely. Um, there's only one king. And so the authority of Jesus in my life then has comprehensive implications. What I do with my time, what I do with my money, what I do with my talents, what I do with my resources, what I do with my um, intellect, all of those things revolve around God's desire for them, not my desire for them that they all belong to him. False authority questions Jesus' authority in your life. So here's the question you have to ask yourself here this morning. Is there any area in my life, is there any area in my life that I question Jesus' authority of it? Think about the entirety of your life. Is there, is there any part of my life, any area, any aspect of my life that Jesus does not have full control of? Does Jesus have the freedom to ask me or to tell me to do anything that he would like? Of course he does. Here's the kicker, where I would respond in obedience. That if Jesus said to me, I want you to go here, I want you to move there, I want you to quit this job, I want you to take that job, I want you to give this away, I want you to serve over here, that you would say, yes, Lord. Does he have that kind of authority in your life? Does he have that freedom in your life? Because this was the issue for the religious leaders. They were unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus. And if it's the same for you, you might want to perk your ears up a little bit because Jesus has a story that he's going to tell the religious leaders, but in the same way, it would be equally important for you and I to hear that if there's any area of our lives that Jesus does not have full authority in. And so he into verse 33, 
Or so they answer Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Fine, you won't answer my question. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. But while you're here, let me tell you a story. And he starts telling them this parable. And he began to speak to them in parables. Uh, 12.1, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And so Jesus begins to tell this story about a man who had a vineyard and, and he took great care of it and then he began to lease it out. Now, any Jewish reader, any Jewish listener would read these first couple of verses of Mark 12 and their mind would go to Isaiah 5 and the song of the vineyard. And in Isaiah 5, Isaiah is prophesying about the nation of Israel and that God had done everything imaginable. He had cultivated this, this, this vine so tenderly and given it every advantage possible, but God had an expectation of that vine. In that he had cultivated the ground so, so, so um, meticulously, he expected the vine to produce fruit. And when the vine didn't produce, a judgment was pronounced, and it was God's way of speaking to the nation of Israel. I have an expectation for you I have given you every conceivable advantage, and you have not produced. Similar to the fig trees we just saw earlier in Matthew 11. It sounds an awful lot like the religious leaders, doesn't it? And if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, if we're just totally honest with ourselves, it sounds an awful lot like the American church. I've given you every conceivable advantage possible, but I have an expectation for you. And that same judgment that was pronounced in Isaiah 5 is certainly at play and in the mind of Jesus as he's telling this parable. And so notice as he proceeds in verse 3 and following, Jesus tells us this. Servant comes to collect, whether it's some of the fruit or the money or a combination of both. Whatever it is, it would have been clearly laid out prior to the, um, the, the tenants taking over the land. Servant comes, verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. What? And as if that's not bad enough, notice it just continues to escalate. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. What Jesus is likely referencing here is the number of prophets in the Old Testament and the messengers that preceded him calling the nation of Israel to repentance, to turn, turn from sin back to God, listen, uh, to, to be exhorted in a particular way, all these different things, and the nation of Israel repeatedly over and over and over again rejected. They rejected God's messenger for them in the same way that the religious leaders here are rejecting God himself. The story the story is meant to highlight the outrageous behavior of the tenants, which is really pointing back to the re religious leaders and the audacity that they would have to question the authority of God in their life. I mean, Jesus is laying it on pretty thick for these guys. And he doesn't stop there. He goes to verse 6, and he says, He had still one other, and then these three words, a beloved son. We've seen those words a few times in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? We saw it back in chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my beloved son. We saw a few chapters ago in Mark 9 at Jesus' transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And then he told the other three guys there, listen to him. And here referencing again, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them or sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. I mean, it's a logical thought, right? But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then, uh, this is just foolishness in, in incredible form. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Well, if we kill the heir, then surely the guy will just give us the vineyard. You're nuts. You kill one of my sons, I'm not giving you anything except maybe a couple of fives. You know what I'm talking about? And yet these guys think, we're going to get this. Verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I mean, these guys are so out of bounds and trying to control everything. They come to the point where they're going to murder the Messiah. 
And it's equally crazy that they think they're going to actually possess the land. The, right, the religious leaders are acting like these tenants. God is saying, you think, you think the nation of Israel belongs to you? It's never belonged to you. It's always been mine. Everyone has always been mine. And the audacity to question the authority of God in their life. And so then you get to verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, in short, he's going to wreck shop. That's what he's going to do. He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's God's wrath. God's wrath is going to be executed. God's wrath is going to be poured out. God's wrath is going to be found upon those who would find themselves positioning themselves against Jesus and questioning his authority. Jesus goes on and says, have you not read this scripture? Quoting from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's like, man, not only are you guys not in charge, but you're messing with the guy who is. You're messing with the foundational piece of all of this. And here Jesus is speaking out against their questioning of his authority and their attempt to usurp it. In fact, look at what it says in verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. You think? Duh! Of course it's against you. Let me just be clear at what's at stake here. Because this is a serious, serious warning, not only for the religious leaders, but for each and every person who would read this text. When you and I come before God, when you and I come to a place where we would question the authority that God has in our life, we are no different than the religious leaders, we are no different than the tenants, in that we position ourselves in opposition to God. And what you will find in that place is the wrath of God. To question the authority of God is to position yourself in opposition of God and, and to, you can expect the wrath of God. So let me just ask you again, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? You, you really want to be in charge? You really want to position yourself against the Almighty? No thanks. False authority questions Jesus' authority. Notice the secondly... False authority tests God's authority. Not, not, not only do they question his authority, not, now they're going to ratchet it up a level. They're going to actually push the envelope. Into verse 12, they left him and went away. Verse 13, and they, speaking of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So their little shindig with him by what authority and asking that question, that didn't work. All right, let's send some others. And so they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now you cannot find two otter bedfellows to go to, 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 to bat on an issue as these two. You couldn't be any further apart. This is like find the most liberal Democrat and the most conservative Republican and you're like halfway there in terms of how, how at odds these two are with everything that they believe and, th believe and think. And yet here they are together, right? Because they're bound by one common goal, and it's to get rid of this Jewish rebel Messiah guy named Jesus. And so the religious leaders send them, and they come to Jesus. And of course, Mark tells us their intent right up front to trap him in his talk. They're going to test him. In fact, Jesus will use that very word in verse 15. Why do you put me to the test? But they come to him, and before we're going to trap him, you've got to set the bait. And so they butter him up a little bit. Let's tell Jesus how great he is. And they come to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Correct. For you are not swayed by appearances. Correct. But truly teach the way of God. Correct. There's some irony in their false flattery of Jesus in that they speak truthfully of who he really is, all the while exposing the hypocrisy of their hearts. Like they can't even see what they're doing. Of course, Jesus sees right through it, and they pose their question to him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, here's what they're asking about. 
They're asking about a poll tax or a head tax. It was a tax that the Roman government levied on uh, all the people. On one side, on, on the highly Jewish theocracy, have nothing to do with the Roman side, to, to have anything to do with the Romans is nothing short of heretical. So to not pay the tax would essentially, uh, w- w- to, to not pay the tax would be good from the Jewish sense, but then you've got, well, what do we do with the Roman government? And now you're, you're undermining the government that's ruling over you. On the other side of the equation, to pay the Roman government is, is nothing short of treasonous. How could you possibly partner with those criminals and those thieves and those pagans? And so from an intellectual standpoint, it's about as close as you're going to get to legitimately trapping Jesus. There's not really a great answer for this. Unless you're Jesus, you've got a great answer for everything. And so Jesus says, look at his response. Why put me to the test? See, he exposes up front, listen, let's call this what it is. I know what you're doing. You're testing me. Okay, good. Now that we've got that out of the way, let me blow you out of the water. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so here, give me like four or five people. Come up here. Let's do this. Come on, give me four, come on four or five people. Come up here. I want you to see this. Okay, we'll do four. <laughs> the audience participation, not so great this morning. All right, you guys are the Herodians. All right, y'all are the Pharisees. Alan, I'm going to give this to you because you're going to need that in a minute. And so you come up, right, and here they come and they approach. There's probably more than four of them. And they're buttering him up, man. You're so great and you know so much and you speak the truth of God and you're so amazing. Hey, one question for you since you know everything. Lawful to pay tax or not? Jesus looks at him and says, why you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they no doubt had one. A denarius was, was a coin uh, that had the, uh, both the image and inscription of Caesar on it. It was worth about a day's wage. Ironically enough, it was typically the coin that was paid for the tax. So I think there's a little bit of irony that Jesus is using here. And so they hand it to him. And can you just see Jesus? They hand it to him. Whose inscription is on this? And they would have said, Caesar's. And then Jesus would have said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then I think he flipped the coin and is gone. Okay? If there was ever a mic drop in the ancient Near East, I think this was the moment. Thank you. You guys can sit down. Now listen, go back to verse 15. Why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? Why would anyone put God to the test? Why? Why would we do that? Stupidity, yeah, that certainly is probably part of it. But you know, I I was thinking about this this week. I think there's maybe a lot of reasons that we could potentially put God to the test, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is in my heart of hearts, I'm not satisfied with him. I think that's what would move any of us to the point or the place where I would put God to the test. Where I would, where I would question the legitimacy and the goodness of God. That, that I'm not satisfied in Him. That somehow, in some way, in some form, I want to live beyond the parameters and the boundaries of God's covenant love. And when you say it like that, it just sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's really what we're suggesting to test God is, hey, you know what, God, you're not good enough. I don't like you the way you are. You're not who I want you to be. This might surprise you when I say this, but you're actually right. He's not who you want him to be. He's better. You can't make him in your mind as good as he even is. That's how far above he is between us and him. See, we test him because we're not satisfied in him. And you might say, listen, I, I would never put him to the test. I would never ask him a question. I would never do this. Maybe not that. But no doubt there are ways that you and I test the authority of God in our lives. 
quite regularly, actually. So I started writing down different ways this week and different things, and like, oh, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And, and as I just thought about it, I'm like, you know what? There was one. There was one that stood out so far above all the others. Like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about that one thing. And here it is. The ways, I think the most prominent way that you and I put God to the test in our lives today revolves around his word. And here's what I mean by it. We will ignore it, we will reject it, or we will rationalize it. Because I don't want to do what it says. Because I'm uncomfortable with what it calls me to. I don't like where it's going to move me. I don't like how demanding it is. And so I begin to find ways to excuse it away. Well, God didn't really mean this here. And, and historically, it's not really this. And we don't have to live this way. And God doesn't want me to suffer. And Is there any way in your life that you ignore God's word? Just ask yourself that question first of all. Is there any way in your life that you reject God's word? See, to ignore God's word is not to open it and let it speak into your life with regularity. To reject it is to see something. And whether passively or actively, to not do it. You're testing God's authority. Or to rationalize it. This is where most of us tend to fall. We rationalize it. This isn't really what God meant. We want to excuse away a behavior, a thought pattern, a, um, something in our life that God is calling us to move or change. False authority will test God's authority. One of the ways, probably the clearest way that you're going to know whether or not you are falling under God's authority and whether or not you're testing God's authority is, do I open this book and do I do what it says? If not, you're testing God's authority. This is what God has given to you and I. But it's not, just, it's not just about opening it. It's about opening it and doing what God tells us to do. False authority tests God's authority. Notice this third group here, starting in verse 18 through verse 27. And the Sadducees. So we've had the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. We had the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now we have this next group, the Sadducees. Mark tells us in verse 18, look at what he says, who say that there is no resurrection. Another thing about the Sadducees is they only believe that the first five books of the Bible were actually the Bible. Uh, both of those will become important points here in just a moment. But So they come to Jesus. Like, hey, we got a question for you. And their question starts in verse 19, kind of a long, convoluted question here. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're referencing back to the Old Testament law. And, and in the history of Israel, the family line was a very, very prominent thing. And so part, the book of Ruth is actually tied to this very concept. But in, in current day, it, it's really quite odd and super weird. But essentially what would happen is if I if I'm married Becky, if we hadn't had any kids and I died and my brother didn't have a spouse, he was bound to take Becky as his wife. And then he, they would have a child together but that child would carry on my lineage, so to speak. My wife's looking at me like, that's so weird. It is. It's super weird in our society. But it, that, that was not as weird in their day and age, okay? So don't be totally weirded out by the question. Verse 20, they tell us there's not one brother, there's seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Here's their question. In the resurrection, keep in mind they don't believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For, sh for the seven had her as a wife. What are they really after here? See, what they're really after is they're saying, this whole resurrection thing is whack. You see? I go... Who's she going to be married to? See how easily the logistics get messed up? Who can really believe in eternal life? So Jesus says this. At this point, I think he's just kind of done um, <laughs> being uh, diplomatic, so to speak. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Okay, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. 
Then he goes on, he says this, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And just in case you missed it at the front, and Jesus says it again, you are quite wrong. You're totally wrong. You're not even in the ballpark here, guys. False authority manipulates God's truths. It manipulates what God says. It manipulates what God has done. Let's just talk about these two things here in verse 24 for a moment. Here's the first. Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures. He's telling these guys, you don't know the Scriptures. Now, part of that is tied to what they believed were and were not the Scriptures. He's like, of course you don't know what's going on. Because starting with Joshua moving forward, you don't even understand the the, the authoritative power of my word uh, through the nation of Israel. You don't know the Scriptures. They're not authoritative to you. Uh, You you don't understand their truthfulness in your life. You you don't allow God's word to impose its truth upon you. Probably some good questions in our life to think about and to consider. Do I know the Scriptures? I'm not saying can you quote Leviticus 6.17 off the top of your head. I'm saying are you familiar with God's redemptive plan? Are you growing in a faithfulness and obedience to opening God's word and letting it speak into your life? Simply put, loved ones, do you read the scriptures? Do you read them? I find it mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. At the number of followers of Jesus who don't Read the scriptures. I don't get it. God spoke. Why wouldn't we read his word? If you have cancer and you go to the doctor and they say, here's medicine, do you take it? Of course you do. If you're hungry and you go to the kitchen and you find some food, do you stare at it or do you eat it? You eat it. And yet God speaks to us, and we ignore it. We treat it as optional. We treat it as something we might get to. If I have time, if I like it, if, it, if I find it entertaining or appealing, God himself is speaking to us. When to talk about authority, man, it's, it's the very word of God. When I was growing up, we had um, a family that lived across the street. They became really good friends of ours. Uh, they had four young boys, and uh, so their youngest was probably 10 years younger than I was. Or their oldest, sorry, was about 10 years younger than I was, and their, their youngest was probably 15, 16 years older or younger than I was. And uh, so I was in high school when, when uh, this all began, but Jane, the mother, uh, probably late 30s, uh, got breast cancer. And uh, so went through uh, chemo, radiation, all that stuff, uh, came out, was okay. And about 18 months later, realized it had metastasized and, moved, metastasized and moved to her brain and was given a number of months to live. Four young kids, the oldest was, I think, 10 at the time, the youngest was two or three. And so amongst a number of other things that Jane did, one of the things that she did is she sat down and she began to write notes to each of her boys that they would have at various momentous occasions on their life, when they drove, when they graduated, um, on their first date, when they got engaged, when they got married, when they had a child, things of that nature. Writing, 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 writing. Why? Because she knew she could not be physically present. Right? And this is where the illustration breaks down. She understood she could not be physically present with her boys, but she wanted to speak into their life. It's God's word. Of course, God is physically present. But he wants to speak into your life. He wants to speak into my uh, my life. He wants to tell us things. He wants to help us and encourage us and challenge us and change us. Now, as those boys have grown, and as they've come to those various occasions, I know for a fact that they didn't say things like, oh, 
Well, I'm really stoked about the wedding, but I got to go read this letter from my mom real quick before we can get to the good stuff. Poured over it over and over and over and over again, usually with tears streaming down their face. Because mom wanted to speak into their life. God wants to speak into your life. Why in the world would we ignore what he has said to us? You don't know the scriptures. This isn't some nominal religious person. These are religious elites. And Jesus is saying, you don't know the scriptures. God help us that that would not be true of us. Second of all, he says this. He says, you don't know the power of God. You've, malip- you've manipulated the scriptures and you've made them say something that's not there and not say things that are there. And, and you're going to manipulate the power of God. You're going to fail to see the power of God that's on display right in front of you. I mean, the person and work of Jesus made it obvious over and over and over and over and over again. They don't know the power of God. As easy as it would be to zing these guys, like, man, you saw miracles all the time. I'm not sure you and I are in a position to be too hard or too critical of these guys. Because in an honest assessment of our lives, I don't think we'd have to look very far to begin to see the power of God all over the place. I don't know about you, but I know that far too often in my life, I'm guilty of failing to see the power of God. And far too often, my failure shows up in in some way, shape, or form where I will see God's power only when God's movement is favorable or advantageous to me. God, if you've done something good, yeah, that's God's moving. What about when God is allowing something bad? What about when God allows a difficulty? What about when God allows a trial? What about when God allows hardship? What about when God allows your life to cave in? Is he any less powerful? Is he any less good? Is is he any less faithful? This is one of the connection cards that we talk about every Sunday morning. And on the back of this connection card is a prayer request. I'm not going to tell you who submitted this. But I think this is a perfect example of identifying the power of God in what is arguably the deepest and darkest valley this person has ever found themselves in. So let me read this to you and uh, be challenged by this. We have just entered a time of trial and testing. I want to be able... Sorry, we have just entered a time of trial and testing and I want to be able to obey God and joyfully walk through this firmly anchored to him and his word. I learned on Friday that I have cancer. I know nothing more at this time, but we'll find out more details this week. Now listen, listen, listen to what is said next. All praise belongs to him. That's awesome. And then in a little email correspondence that went on during the week, asking about just some of the logistics details, hey, when will you know, Uh, things of that nature, shared a few logistical details, and then finished the email with this. Blessed be God who is good and does good. You have a person in this church that is staring cancer in the face. Their day, all of our days are numbered, but their days, the number of their days may, may be much more limited than yours or mine. And their response is all praise belongs to him. Blessed be God who is good and does good. That is a person who can identify the power of God even in the deepest and darkest valley of their life. God help us. God help us that we would see and know the power of God. Because his power is not restricted to to when he acts in a way that is favorable. It's not restricted to when I find it as advantageous to me or I perceive it to be good. He's powerful at all times. I fear in my life that far too often I miss the power of God because I don't see it as being favorable or beneficial to me. And that's far too restrictive of God's power. False authority manipulates God's truths. Let me just briefly, briefly touch on a couple things in verses 24 through 27 that that 
honestly can create some confusion or heartache or things of that nature for people. Uh, three things I want to touch on just quickly. One, angels. Uh, Jesus makes this statement for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. And some people have taken this verse to say, well, when we die, we're just angels. No, we're not. Go read 1 Corinthians 15, amongst other places. You and I are going to have a physical resurrected body. It's going to be like being 22 perpetually, okay? Nothing's broken. Everything works. You're st- I, I don't even know if we'll be sore in heaven. I mean, even at 22, you can get sore, all right? Uh, but you and I are not angels. We are distinct, very distinct creatures, different beings. Secondly, Jesus talks about marriage, and he makes the statement that they're not, uh, you're not given in marriage, ne- neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, keep in mind, he's not addressing, the question wasn't, are we going to be married in heaven? He's, he's addressing these guys' issue. Now, I'll tell you, when it comes to this particular thing, uh, so, some people are really bothered by this. How am I not going to be married in heaven? I think what's grievous is the number of people that aren't bothered by that. The thought of not spending eternity married to their spouse. I'll tell you this much. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure how it's going to work, but here's what we do know. That all relationships, listen very carefully, all relationships in the presence of God, absent of sin, will be deeper, more intimate, and more fulfilling than you and I can even imagine here. I don't know if you're going to be married or not. You won't care because it's going to be better than any relationship you've ever had. Thirdly, the resurrection in general. Jesus says this in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. We live in eternity. You realize that right now you're living in eternity? You're existing in eternity right now. That's what we're living in. For any of you who have turned from sin towards Christ and, and have surrendered your life to him, hear me when I say this. This is as bad, or it's pretty close to as bad as all of forever will be for you. But 99.9999999 and to, you know, the infinite nines percent of your existence is going to be glorious. You just start with the worst part. And then you die or Jesus comes back. And if you're his, it's glorious. Of course, if you're not, uh, the inverse of that is true. Can I just implore you? Loved ones, can I just implore you to keep your eyes fixed on eternity? To not be seduced into thinking that this world is more than it is, or to be seduced into thinking that eternity is less than it is, but to live the entirety of your life with, with, with eternity in view. That the way that we see and, and understand and view, my goodness, we can't get through a week anymore globally without a, a horrendous tragedy. And that, that may never change. What feels so out of place, what feels so extreme to us, I hope it's not true, but three, four years from now, might feel common and normal. That should grieve our hearts. We live in a broken world. This isn't home. Paul's exhortation in Philippians 3, that if we're citizens of heaven, not of here, let us live with that in mind. A false authority manipulates God's truths. Let's not manipulate what he said. Let's not manipulate what he's done. Here's the final thing. And just briefly. Finally, we come to someone with a legitimate question of Jesus. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, listen to what he says next, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I just wrote this down. Loving Jesus comprehensively. Loving Jesus comprehensively. As as Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, and then this scribe in his response to him talks about loving Jesus with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are not um, four distinct things. They're they're different from each other, uh, but there's a lot of overlap in those as well, and so we don't want to necessarily parse them out more than should be. The point being, is that comprehensively, 
we love the person of Jesus. Which stands in stark contrast to all the other religious leaders we've seen thus far and their unwillingness to fully love the person of Jesus. And he says this in the second half of verse 33, that, that to love Jesus and then to love others, right, which is the manifestation of the proof that we love Jesus, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's how I know I've got your heart. And that's what I want is your heart. I don't care about what you do. I care about who has your heart. Loving Jesus is the most noble thing that you and I can do. And in short... Here's the contrast between this scribe and all of the religious leaders that we've seen thus far. The religious leaders would give Jesus their actions, but they did not give him their heart. And and in complete fairness to that, even in their actions that they gave, they were really aligned for themselves and for themselves. And where this scribe The scribe was concerned only with being aligned to Jesus and to loving him comprehensively and allowing that to drive how he lived his life, which is why Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's like, you got it. And of course, the rest, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They knew that their way wasn't going to cut it and it wasn't Jesus' way. Loved ones, who's in charge? Who's in charge? who's running your life, who's driving all that you are, who's driving all that you do. If anyone or anything is sitting on the throne of your life and that person's name is not Jesus, repentance is the only response and it's time to put him back on the throne and let Jesus have full control of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, I'm reminded right now of your great patience of your forbearance. God, that in in the variety of ways that we have proven ourselves to be unfaithful or unworthy, you have proven yourself to be more than worthy and incredibly faithful. God, we thank you that, that your love for us does not rise and fall on our ability to be good or do the right thing, but it rises and falls upon your finished work on the cross. God, no doubt every person in this room in various areas in their life struggle with, wrestle with, or just flat out sinful with respect to allowing you to be uh, in complete control of everything that we are and everything that we do. And so God, in one sense, we thank you for your Spirit's conviction that you press in upon us, that you push us and move us back to the cross. But in another sense, we say thank you that you don't just crush us with your wrath, but that you move us back to the place where your wrath was satisfied on our behalf. God, help us. God, help us to surrender. God, help us to put you back in charge. 